Let's start with prayer. Lord, this morning before we begin worship together, or as we continue worship together, I want to lift up Hayden and Amy Flowers, uh, good friends that are on the field. Lord, I pray for your will to be done in their circumstance. Pray that you will um, just give them a confidence and a peace that passes understanding and just a trust in knowing that you are on your throne, whatever their future might hold in Cyprus. Uh, Lord, we just pray that you'll be glorified. Thank you for their burden. Thank you for their worship out loud in Cyprus. Thank you for those they are walking with and the stewardship that they have in those relationships over their souls. Lord, we just just beg for your glory in that situation. Lord, also this morning as we gather at Crosspoint and those who may be worshiping with us for the first time, Lord, we pray that we'll bring glory to you in our devotion, in our urgency, in our authenticity, in our engagement of a... um, message that matters and Lord I just pray that you'll just wreck us from the inside rebuild us make us into the image of your son pray that you'll build us into a bride that's shiny and beautiful for Christ's return pray that you'll be glorified in the next few minutes I pray that you will guard me from um, any emotion any man made man centered man-driven thing that could get in the way of the message. And I pray just for a, um, uh, just a concentration and availability and instrumentation of a message for your people. Uh, Lord, we uh, count it a privilege to be together this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Turn to John chapter 12. <coughs> the last few weeks I've been preparing to preach this message. I think there's such thing as having too much time to prepare. Um, it's almost like it becomes uh, something that you, you're anxious to liberate and I've been anxious for this moment. Not to get rid of it but so that you could feast on it as well. It's a message for Greenville and Really, I realize as I'm beginning this message, as we're going to look at the passage here in a moment, that Christ is speaking here in John chapter 12. He's speaking to the crowds in Jerusalem, likely on Sunday, as he's entered Jerusalem in the final week of his life up to the cross. So it's for the crowds, but it's also for his disciples. And this is one of those messages that, while it's a message for Greenville, it's also a message for us in Greenville. And it's also one of those messages that will probably stroke and encourage some and say, keep at it, you're doing a good thing. And with this very same words, will kick others into behind. That will comfort some and disturb others. And I pray that it will do both. I pray that it will, I've prayed that it would not be something that would just fall on um, distracted ears. Before I read the passage, I want to share with you just briefly that the Bible, and especially John, often has layered meanings. The book of John is really uh, full of these occasions where there's a a meaning for the, the immediate audience, and then there's a meaning, a timeless message for 
the timeless audience, us, 2,000 years later. And I'm going to address the immediate meaning that was for that audience in the in, in, take about 10 seconds to do that, and then we're going to take the rest of our time together to feast on the timeless message. Let me read our passage. John chapter 12, beginning in verse 32. Christ says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We've heard that the law, from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from among them. First, the immediate meaning as it left Christ's lips and it was heard there and likely in Jerusalem on Sunday is that you better pay attention. You better tune in. I'm looking for eye contact among all these people for I'm in my last days and hours before the cross. This is an important time. Enjoy me while you've got me. That's the immediate meaning. Now for the timeless message. It's where we're going to bathe in these next few minutes. From this passage, the timeless message is that there are three robust realities of genuine belief. When I say robust, I'm talking about chest hair sort of realities. And I'm talking about that got teeth, got fangs sort of realities. And I hope that you're like me and that you want to know what this book says about genuine belief. I hope that you're like me. You don't want to hear some cute emails or funny stories. But when it comes to the issue of eternity, you want to know what this book says about eternity and what true belief looks like. So I hope with me that we've got eye contact for these next few minutes with the timeless message. First point, three points, three robust realities of genuine belief. Here's the first robust reality is that real belief walks. I don't know that I've ever taken a poll in a sermon, but I'm going to take a poll right now with a show of hands. I want to know how many of you walk to work. Just show me with a show of hands. Uh-oh. Okay, um, how many of you walk to school? You might have a few kids or young people raise their hands, couple, okay. How many of you walk to market or the grocery store? None? Okay. I did that poll for a reason because I want you to see, and what you'll see in a moment and appreciate is that that is a problem. It's not a problem that we're inactive or that we get in our car to go anywhere. That may be a problem, but that's not the problem I'm talking about. You're going to see in a moment in what develops in the next few minutes why that's a problem. Look at verse 35. Jesus is speaking to these guys, and he says, The light, he's speaking of himself, is among you for a little while longer. He says, Walk while you have the light. And then look down in verse 36. He says, While you have the light, believe in the light. Now, what those verses have in common is they have while you have the light. What they have that's different is in one occasion it says walk while you have the light. In the other occasion it says believe in the light while you have the light. 
And those things, walking and believing, are not two separate things. They're just two ways of saying the very same thing. That walking and believing, those are the same. That believing is walking. And the reason we've got to take a few minutes and just stop and consider what this looks like is because we don't walk. The people that would have heard this message and heard these words as Christ spoke them, they walked everywhere. It wasn't a choice among five. It was the choice. Wherever you went, every day you walked. We may walk next door for a cup of sugar. Or we may walk around the block a little bit for exercise, but we don't like the original readers of this book walk everywhere. And that's a problem because proper belief is like daily movement of life, but specifically, it's like walking in mobility at three miles an hour. We don't know what that looks like. We don't know what that feels like, but proper belief, robust belief, is mobile at three miles an hour with sweaty brows and dusty, achy, tired feet. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 5. We're going to walk through a few passages in keeping with our topic. I want you to see here in these next few passages that walking is not, this is not a rare occurrence. That this reference of walking equal, equals believing is not unique. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 33. This is a charge to the nation of Israel. You shall walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live and that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land that you shall possess. Look at chapter 6, verse 7. You shall teach them, them is referring to these words, diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way. And when you lie down and when you rise. Turn over the next page. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 6. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. Turn to chapter 10, verse 12. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God to walk? in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Turn to chapter 11, verse 22. For if you will be careful to do all this commandment that I command you to do, loving the Lord your God, walking in all his ways and holding fast to him, then the Lord will drive out all these nations before you. Turn to Romans chapter 6. Just so you see that it's not just an Old Testament picture. Romans chapter 6, and let me call your attention to something as you're turning there. If you're kind of getting tired, like, hey, this is kind of uh, overkill, I got it, I got the point. It's evidence that you're not walking. <laughs> it's proof that we're not built for walking. Because the walking people will say, show me, show me, let me see the next one, let me take the next step into the next verse and the next verse, and there's no such thing as overdoing it. So let's look at Romans chapter 6, verse 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Starting in 
So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. This thing that seems so insignificant, okay, man, I got that. I don't do it, but I got it. Okay, I got the point. Is very important to God. I hope you're getting that picture. Just from a few verses, it's all over our Bible. Walking, walking, walking. That is the picture of belief. I was thinking in preparation for this Sunday and this message that it's hard to illustrate something that we don't do. While we might walk next door for a cup of sugar, we might walk for exercise, we're not limited to that as our only resource and our only mode of transportation. So I'm trying to think, and I, I, Lord, I'm, give me a, an illustration of something that looks like faithful daily walking. And the Lord took me to my great uncle, Elbert Hickman. Elbert Hickman was a guy, he was, he was a really unique guy. He, only died, he died about a year ago. From my, my earliest days, I can remember him, he always seemed ancient. He didn't have any teeth. He had dentures, but he'd take his teeth out, and we'd go duck hunting together. He'd take his teeth out, put in a plug of chewing tobacco, and he would smack that chewing tobacco, and his lips and mouth and jaw would do something like I've never seen before or since. Elbert Hickman was proof that your nose and your ears keep growing as you age because they were huge. I remember everything about Elbert Hickman, but the thing that I remember the most is after an early morning duck hunt, he'd take off his waders and he'd put on his work boots and put on his work gloves and go right to his garden. Elbert was all about his garden. Whether it was in season or out, if you know anything about hunting, you know that hunting takes place in the, in, in the winter. And yet he would go straight to his garden and he's working the ground, he's fertilizing, he's preparing the ground, he's sowing, he's planting. And if he's not just uh, finishing up some sort of project, he's working on the next project all the time like a faithful gardener. And it was a daily sort of venture. And that's the picture of walking daily sort of belief done at three miles an hour. I'll tell you what walking sort of belief is not. Walking sort of belief is not running to catch up when crisis comes. I see that so often. I'm thankful that people, when they're in crisis, they rush to a pastor or their pastor. Oftentimes, the former, a pastor. Where's one I can find to fix my problem? I'm thankful that people run to me in that sort of situation, but I often feel ill-equipped to handle this problem that's unfolded over years to fix it in the next few minutes. But walking is not like running to catch up when crisis comes. You can no more do that than you can plant and yield a harvest from a garden that you planted yesterday. It doesn't work that way. Faithful walking is born and lived out in time, over time. Marriages are rescued over years, not days, not weeks. Lives are changed in months and years. Young people, we think about things overnight. We've been conditioned to email and internet and FedEx and fast food. And we think if we want something, we get it right now. The journey of faith does not work that way. We have to walk in it. And it takes time. 
and it's realized and born and lived out in days and months and years. Kingdom solutions are realized at three miles an hour. I'm going to say that again if you've got to get that. Kingdom solutions are lived out and realized at three miles an hour. We're going to kind of move into a little bit of the thoughts for Greenville, and I'll tie this up at the end. But one other thing that I've thought about as I'm considering this daily walk, this picture of daily belief as walking, is the Sunday morning mindset of church doesn't reconcile with that sort of mindset. I bet you're like me, you either content you are or you have referred to church as what we're doing right now instead of what we're doing right now as corporate worship. And people joke with me about this and pick with me about this, of this being kind of my soapbox. It is my soapbox, and I'll die on this hill that do not call his church a building, do not call his church an activity because his church are an organic people that are to be living and breathing and engaging each other and engaging their community all week long every day in the dailiness of life, like walkers. So don't say we're going to church. You are the church. Say we're going to corporate worship. We're going to gather together and to be refreshed and filled and equipped so that I can walk on Monday and walk on Tuesday with each other and with our Lord. It's not walking to have the Sunday morning sprint. Walking doesn't work that way. Walking illustrates the journey of faith. It's like breathing. You do it every day. It's like eating. You ever been around those guys that forget to eat? I've never been one of those guys. You don't forget to walk either. Just like you eat, just like you breathe, it's daily. Just like sleeping. It's a daily venture. It's not a ride. It's not a sit. It's not a beam me up, Scotty. It's not an 80 mile per hour movement in your Jetta. But it's a simple, anything but spectacular movement, consistent, daily, and slow, made up of little daily steps, each of which seem insignificant and seem like they won't get you very far. That's the way it works. But then over time, you look back and you go, man, a little bit of dailiness, a little bit of faithfulness born out in a daily venture. And God's moved me somehow. And all the while, I didn't even feel the wind. I didn't even feel the G's. But he was moving me slowly, daily, over time. That's the way real belief works. Real belief walks. Secondly, true belief is urgent. If you're not in John 12, go back there. Real belief is urgent. I want you to consider the crowd's mindset as Christ is speaking to this crowd. Look in verse 32. He's just said, when the Son of Man is lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. And in verse 33, he said this to show what, by what kind of death he was going to die. They must have understood it to mean that he was going to be temporary. Because listen to what they say. They say, so the crowd answered him, we've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. <laughs> Come on, Jesus. What are you talking about? We've heard from the law the Son of Man remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? They must have had some sense of what lifted up means. I don't know if it was shorthand for crucifixion or if they had some sense that it it meant that he was going to be temporary, but they understood it to mean 
that he was saying that you wouldn't have access forever. And their response is, the Christ remains forever. It must have struck Christ as funny. It must have sounded like a relaxed, unburdened, even proud people. Ha! The Christ remains forever. They've shown already throughout the book of John that they believed that since they were God's chosen people, that God was beholding to them. What do you mean he's only here temporary? They believed the Messiah would come and would squash Rome and would liberate them from that oppression and be their ruler to be a new superpower. And it's funny that they weren't prepared for it with chapters in books like Isaiah chapter 53. Did you read it? But Jesus tells this unburdened people, he says, walk. He says, believe. And let me explain to you the emphasis on that. In the Greek language, those words, they're not appreciated here because they they ought to have exclamation points after them. I didn't share this in the first section because this has more to do with the second point. The true belief is urgent. It's like a shout. It's walk. It's believe. It would be like if you're drowning in a lake and you shout, help. That's an imperative. And that's what Jesus is telling them. Walk. Believe. And then he adds, while you have the light. And he says it twice. While you have the light. The light won't always be available to you, you proud, relaxed, unburdened people. It's a visual in verse 36 of what he's talking about. Right after he said these words, it says, When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. It's a visual aid to his sermon he's just preached. Look, here you go. Let me illustrate what I'm talking about. Boop, I'm gone. Reminds me of Genesis chapter 6, verse 3. Preparing the ground for the flood, God says, I will not contend with man forever. You're not going to have me forever. You're not going to have access to me forever. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 7 says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Today. In the last six months to a year, I've talked with a number of you in various situations. And I know that many of you are in different situations where you're seeing or experiencing the light. And my urging to you right now, my burden is my plea, is walk in that light right now. Now, while it's today, if the Lord is revealing something to you, then respond to it now. Don't sit on it. Don't wait for it to just overwhelm you. Walk in it. Reach out and talk with the person maybe that invited you. Talk with a person that you, that you see and believe may be a little bit more mature than you where they can show you how to respond to this. Talk with your teacher. Talk with me. Talk with any of the other elders. Respond to it and walk in the light while you have it because you won't always have it. Walk while it's today because he'll not contend with man forever. And then he says, after he screams, walk, believe in the imperative. While you have the light, he says, less darkness overtake you. That's what you've got to realize in this second part of true belief is urgent. 
You see, not only do we walk urgently for the reason, because he demanded it, but also because darkness is right behind us waiting to eat our lunch. It's not a maybe, it's a given. Darkness is eager to overtake you. Darkness is in pursuit. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 says, The devil prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. I'm not a biologist. I haven't studied lions a lot. But here are a few things I know about lions. Is that lions go after the lazy, the lethargic, the lame, and the alone. If you're any of those things, guess what? You may be lunch already. And you may not even know it. Based on what I've seen from the devil, that's the way he works. Darkness is not so obvious. You won't even know when you're being swallowed by darkness. Hour by hour, day by day, it swallows your marriage. It swallows your family, your pursuits, and your legacy. And it won't be obvious. Little bitty, seemingly insignificant, innocuous opportunities. Oh, you mean I can work overtime on Sundays and not shepherd my family in the equipping of God's Word? Oh, you mean I can bring home a little bit more money? Oh. Hey, that'd be pretty harmless. I'll do that for a season. Meanwhile, who's shepherding your family? Little seemingly harmless and innocuous opportunities and darkness is waiting to eat your lunch if you're not walking. Here's the reality. Is that you're either walking, i.e. believing urgently, or you're being eaten by darkness. There's no choice C or choice three. There's no, okay, I just got my cruise on. Or I'm just kind of hanging in there. You're either being eaten or you're walking. There's nowhere in between. Third, well, let me show you a passage before we go to the third point. First Peter chapter 1. It's on page 1014 of your pew Bible, or if you have an ESV. We may not have pew Bibles in here. This is a picture of urgent belief among the people of God. The same Peter that expressed that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, won't eat your lunch, said these words in verse, wrote these words in verse 17 of chapter 1. And if you call on him as father, in other words, if you are professing to be a believer. If you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Here, walk urgently. (laughs) Conduct yourselves with fear, realizing that the devil is behind you wanting to eat your lunch. And the reason you do that is because you're knowing that you were ransomed from futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. True belief is urgent. It's not lazy or lame or lethargic or alone. The third point, turn back to John chapter 12 if you're not there. Real belief walks. True belief is urgent. Third, mature belief is subjunctive. Everybody know what subjunctive is? 
I thought about, as I prepared this message, and I thought about this word that I was going to introduce, I thought, man, you know, most people aren't going to know that word. And I know how people are about preacher words that kind of roll their eyes, like, ah, oh, the guy's just trying to kind of show off. You know, he's got a different vocabulary. And then I thought, you know what? Old manna sours. That's why you had to go out and get new manna every day. So if for you, church is just about hearing what you already know and somebody just kind of stroking and affirming that, that's old manna, and that's going to sour, I promise you, if it hadn't soured already. So you need some new manna. So here's some new manna for you. It's a word you may not have ever heard before, and that's okay. You're not expected to know it. It has to do with the Greek language, but it's, man, I'm telling you, the riches in understanding this truth. In Greek, there were different moods that were used. I already introduced you to one of them, the imperative. Help! Walk! Believe! With big exclamation points. The subjunctive is different. The subjunctive mood means that the action is probable but uncertain. I'll give you an example. We may eat lunch at Molina's after worship today. It's probable but uncertain. Christy may have some other plan for us. I'm thinking Molina's, but we may have something else. It may detour us away from that. I may take a nap after our corporate worship time today. Probable, but uncertain. Both of these cases allow for the possibility that I may not. Now, look at our passage here. Jesus says, the light, in verse 35, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Folks, that's a subjunctive. See, that's new manna. And let me show you why that's new manna. What you've got to appreciate and realize is the gravity of this subjunctive is much greater than the gravity of whether I'm going to eat lunch at Molina's or not, or whether I'm going to take a nap or not. This subjunctive is referring to salvation. Of the three points that I was anxious and eager to share with this people this morning, this is probably the most important of the three. And it's probably the most obscure and discreet. This subjunctive mood reflects the possibility that you may not be sons of light. My whole life, ministers, teachers, preachers have been about the work of assuring me of my salvation. Anytime I ever had trouble, you know, I'm not sure if I'm saved. I'm not sure if I'm walking with the Lord right now. Oh, man, it's okay. Tell me the date, place, time, and hour that you made that decision. I was six years old. I was sitting on one of those little wooden uh, chairs that's made like an elephant could sit on it, although it's only this big. And my RA teacher shared with me, and I remember the exact moment. Well, you're okay. You're okay. People so busy about assuring me of my faith that I've missed out on the subjunctive mood. The subjunctive mood is a treasure because it includes a tenor of uncertainty. It includes a hint of insecurity. It provides a taste of fear and trembling and just a kernel of anxiety, healthy anxiety. Turn to Philippians chapter 3. You may know already that the book of Philippians was written by Paul, written to the church of Philippi. That's why it's called Philippians. And uh, 
You may know some things about Paul. Paul's a stud. I mean, when it comes to the faith, Paul was a hero. I want you to hear these words from Paul in chapter 3 of verse 2. It says, Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the real circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. And listen to what he says next. And put no confidence in the flesh. Listen to what he says next. He says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. You could add in there Paul's other achievements of being stoned for the faith of being imprisoned, of being shipwrecked, of being beaten. And all those things, all those feathers in his cap, all those reasons to relax on flowery beds of salvation ease. Paul, you got it going on? Listen to what he says. He says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I counted everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. And listen to what he says next. In order that I may gain Christ. What? Paul, you the man. I don't need to hear a subjunctive tone from you. I don't need to hear subjunctive fear and trembling from you, Paul. What do you mean that I may gain Christ? If anybody had it going on, you had it going on. He says, I put no confidence in the flesh, though. And listen to what he says next. That I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith that I, oh, here it is again that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and that I may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. What? From Paul? Stoned? Shipwrecked? Beaten? Imprisoned? A Jew among Jews, circumcised the eighth day. If anybody had reason to think you got it going on, all I've got is that little bitty wooden chair that I sat in when I prayed that prayer when I was six years old. Paul, you got all this, and yet you're saying may? (sighs) Maybe I need to reconsider. Maybe the mood and tone of my faith and my belief might ought to consider Paul's tone, his subjunctive tone in case you think these are just weird greek occurrences you hear it in actual verbiage in the same book here in chapter 2 look over on the same page chapter 2 verse 12 paul writes to the church listen he says therefore my beloved as you have always obeyed so now not only as in my presence but much more in my absence look listen he says work out your salvation on flowery beds of ease He doesn't say that. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's a subjunctive move, people. And here's another one. In chapter 3, verse 12, 
He says, not that I have already obtained this, this resurrection from the dead, or that I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. The guy that's been stoned, beaten, flogged, imprisoned, the Jew among Jews, circumcised the eighth day, the guy that had so much more than all I had was that little bitty wooden chair and a prayer as an RA at six-year-old. He says, I press on. He says that I may attain. That's a subjunctive mood. I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I don't sit around and consider a prayer that I may have prayed as a little bitty boy and relax on that and rest my entire salvation on that event, my insertion. He says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And I'm going to tell you that he does it today, while it's still today. If anybody demonstrated a dailiness to their faith, it was Paul. I ask you to consider the subjunctive mood. It might be a little complicated for you. You may not have got all that, but here it is in a nutshell. Does my faith reflect his glory? Ask yourself that question. Even kids, my kids, that have supposedly, hopefully, begun a journey of faith and prayed a prayer, which may be a very real genesis of faith. Ask yourself the question, does my faith reflect his glory? Does my faith and my journey and my walk reflect his gospel? Does my life and my loves reflect the fact that I bear his name? I hope that causes you to tremble when you can think about every day, your every thought, your every action, if you can think about your motives. Is it an appropriate response to his cross, my life? The more I study, having pastored for four years, the more I study, the more I tremble. The more acquainted I am with a subjective mood. And listen to what he says next in verse 15. He said, let those of us who are mature think this way. What way? Subjectively. Subjunctively. Fearfully. Tremblingly. We make up all kind of words. Pressing awningly. Let those of us who are mature Think subjunctively. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal it to you also. Let the mature think this way. Message for Greenville. In four years of observing and serving and walking with Greenville like this, with my Bible, reading, looking, reading, talking, reading, praying, reading, engaging our community, hopefully along with you. Here's some thoughts in light of these three robust realities of true belief. I humbly, and I hope and pray it's humbly, because, I, man, I want to examine myself more than any of Greenville, first and foremost. I humbly and carefully offer that I don't see much of these three things. I humbly and carefully offer that I don't see a whole lot of urgent belief that I don't see a whole lot of three mile an hour faith 
And I certainly don't see a subjunctive heart and mood among the professing people of God in, these, in this community. If these are markers of maturity, the only thing I could possibly be left with is that Greenville is either full of spiritual babies or Greenville is full of a bunch of people that think they're saved that aren't. Really wrestled with three observations in regards to these three points. First of the three-mile-an-hour three daily faith in Greenville. The only hint of real three-mile-an-hour movement that I see, and I, I caution to call it three-mile-an-hour movement, is very light church attendance in this community on Sundays. And when I say very light, I mean very light. This is probably the most heavily saturated community in the world with Christian church buildings. Now, notice I qualified church buildings because I don't know how many churches there are in this community. There could be a lot of church buildings and maybe not a whole lot of church. I, I'm, that's not my place to say that. But I, I will venture to say that we may be the most heavily saturated community in the world with Christian church buildings. And yet, estimates are that 3 to 5% of our community is engaging a local body of believers. And that's right smack dab in the buckle of the Bible Belt. We think that we're a churched community. And we think that we got it going on, but I'm afraid that there may not be very much movement at three miles an hour. And again, I'm qualifying that church attendance is not even necessarily three-mile-an-hour movement. There may be some hint there of movement. I share with you very humbly and very carefully, too, that I even see hints of the absence of three-mile-an-hour movement even in our own body periodically. I hope that you're prepared with the reality that we haven't arrived. I haven't. I see it in myself also. Are we moving and walking faithfully at three miles an hour every day? With tools like the shepherd's guide provided to shepherds in this church where you daily can engage your families in the word. With tools like Bible studies on all kind of books of the Bible. With opportunities like Wednesday night Bible study where Every age group can engage not only community, but engage the Word together. With real community opportunities to walk together, dine together, and really be part of each other's lives, I still, after four years, see spurts and sitting. Not as a rule. Not as a rule. I shared with you that this morning some of you might have a pat on the back, and others you might have a swift kick in the behind. And let the Holy Spirit sort out who gets what. I also see the lame and the lazy and the alone and isolated by their own design being eaten by darkness. Where is the three mile an hour faith in Greenville? Where is urgency among the people of God? Where is desperation among the people of God? Where is it? When I consider the professing Christians in Greenville, which really is a lot of Greenville, professing to have some sort of relationship with God through some sort of experience, 
I wonder, where's the desperation? Where's the urgency? Where are people who are more surprised with grace than they are with the new juicy drama going on at the local church? Where are people that are more surprised with grace than they are at creating the new juicy drama at the local church? Where are those who are more surprised with grace than they are at sharing the new juicy drama that's going on at someone else's church? The people of God ought not be about that. We ought to be too busy and too urgent, desperate, urgent, and burdened people don't fight well. (laughs) Greenville, which is like the epicenter of church fights, Desperate, urgent, burdened people don't fight well. Desperate, urgent, burdened people don't gossip well because they're too busy worshiping. Some of that message may be for you. Some of it may be for whoever tunes in to this message during the next few weeks online where they see, hmm, message for Greenville. What's that about? Third thing, where are the fearful and trembling? The frequency in which I hear someone say, ah, I know he's saved. It's usually in a conversation about a family member or a friend knocking on a door, inviting them to cross point, like, man, I sure wish some, my, my son would come part of your church. I know he's saved. He's, he's not in church anywhere. I'm like, really? You know he's saved? How do you know that? Well, I was there, I, I saw the tears. I saw the white knuckles let go of the pew back. And I saw him walk the aisle on the seventh stanza of Just As I Am. I saw it happen. And the whole time I'm thinking, put no confidence in the flesh. Where's the dailiness to that? Where's the subjunctive mood? Where's the fear and trembling? That sort of mindset could learn a lesson from Paul. A lot of times in counseling, again, those that are in the middle of a crisis where they wait for the crisis to reach out to somebody, I hear the statement, I know I'm saved. Meanwhile, me sitting here preaching for four years, eating this book for four years, and thinking, I don't know that I can say that. I trust today. (laughs) I trust that I'm bathing in the blood. But I'm not going to sit around on flowery beds of ease. I know I'm saved. I know I'm saved. Let's not deal with that. Let's deal with my problem. And all the while, I'm thinking, let's, let's start with where Christ is in your life. Who's your functional Savior right now? Because Christ certainly isn't. The ease in which I see shepherds move in and out of their families' lives in the life of the church for promotion or money or whatever. I don't care what the excuse is. It's not good enough. Shepherds, those of you who are here today, those of you who listen to this in the next few weeks because you're not here today, I don't care what the excuse is. It's not good enough to not sit and lead your family in the equipping of worship and wonder. It's a weighty work. How can you possibly do that virtually for long? How can you possibly take seasons away for money or promotion or whatever There's no reason good enough. Shepherds need, families need a shepherd to prepare them because you're either walking or you're being devoured by darkness and you don't even know it. 
Darkness must love to eat families of those who aren't fearful and trembling and urgent and walking. As I consider Greenville, I ask the question, where are the subjunctive moods? I, just, I get sick almost every Sunday before I preach, sick to my stomach. I'm like, man, this is hard. This Sunday was especially so. And reason being is because I, I know that there's potential t- for just all of this to be dismissed with, man, that guy, he's just kind of intense. You know, he used to be a Marine. That's just kind of the way he is. That man, he's intense. We can dismiss him and his message. And you know, my thought is, you know what? I think creation is pretty intense, where God speaks and galaxies hang. I think a worldwide flood and a long swim behind a a, a wooden ark with a bunch of critters on it, that's intense. I think a den full of lions is pretty intense. A fiery furnace, that's pretty intense. I think 400 years in Egypt being beaten by Pharaoh is pretty intense. I think the plagues, when I study them, a darkness that could be felt, hail the size of VW bugs falling on your critters, your livestock, the ones that are living, because the rest of them drop dead, locusts that are up in your bed along with frogs. I think the firstborn of a whole nation Dying in their cribs and in their beds at midnight. That's intense. And I think a cross is pretty intense. And I think a Savior that's going to return at the seventh trump, where the dead in Christ will rise, that's intense. So sometimes when I wonder, man... Am I just being too intense about this? Am I being too serious about this? I'm left when I really consider the sweep of the word and the impact of the word as it's exposed verse by verse. Is there such thing? Is there such thing as being too intense and too serious about eternity? I don't think there is. So what I'm praying for as I consider a passage like this, and as I've preached it, and as I can even consider how it ended before I shared this message that let the mature think this way, and as I examine Greenville, the professing Christianity in Greenville, I have a burden for offspring. I'm not talking, we're done with our three kids. I don't mean physical, we're, we're so done. Not that, I mean, not that's not a good thing. Kids are great. But I have a burden for spiritual offspring. I have a burden for venues like this to be standing room only. I have a burden for our sanctuary to be just stuffed week after week with people, with new life. But I've realized that babies don't make very good parents. It takes adults takes a mature robust belief to beget belief and my burden is that we'll be this people that if you're already growing in that that you'll continue 
And if you're not, if you, for you it was the swift kick in the behind today, that you'll take it and you'll go, man, that was so from the Bible. And that was so from God, and I want to get in step. And that you'll pick up daily opportunities like a shepherd's guide and a friend and a Bible study class. Man, it just blows my mind that people, why wouldn't you be part of a weekly Bible study? Do you not need that? I've got news for you. You do. You cannot survive by yourself. As I consider those things, I have a burden for a church that's all there. For a people that's all there. I want that in myself. I want that in my family. Call us intense. Fine. Man. Find us on our knees. Find us serious about the things that matter. Find us committed and faithful. I'll leave you with one last verse and then we're going to worship in song. Hebrews chapter 6. Writer of the book of Hebrews. He writes, Therefore let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings and the laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. This being growing to maturity. We've got to ask God for it. Growing to maturity is not something that we can just muster. We can't just grit our teeth. and Shepherds, as you're thinking about your families, people, as we're thinking collectively about our church, we can't just muster up maturity. God's got to permit it. We've got to beg him for it. God, grow us up to maturity. Move us on from the things that infants do. Move us to a place of maturity. This, I didn't plan on this thought, but just before I pray, as I consider Greenville and consider where we are as a people, the Christians of this community that I engage, that I talk with, that I hear their testimonies, I think part of the reason that we may not have matured and grown up past the elementary things is because the revival tent has moved into the church building. And now the church building is just a revival tent. There's a place for a revival tent. There is but it's not in the daily equipping of the people of God every single Sunday. What happens when the revival tent moves into the church building is that the same people hear week by week by week a new spin on the gospel. And then we have an altar call, and then we all leave discouraged. Man, nobody walked the aisle. I still feel like a baby. I don't know why I feel like an infant. I don't know why I have no roots to endure the storms of life. But boy, we sure are burdened for the lost. You can have both. You can have a burden for the lost, and yet you can still be equipped in faith and worship and wonder in the weighty work of wonder. Shepherds can be equipped to lead their families. What that's like when the revival tent moves into the church building 
It's like joining a club. Now, I'm not equating the church with a club, but just to go with me on this illustration. It's like joining a club like Lions Club or Civitan or I don't know what kind of stuff we've got here. It's like joining a club and people really pressed you to become a member. So you become a member and then you show up to the first meeting and they're still kind of having this membership drive. And you're like, okay, well, you know, they got me in. The membership drive's still going. Then you show up to the next meeting and it's still a membership drive. And then you show up to the next meeting and it's a membership drive. And finally you go, hey, man, does this club do anything? What do we do? Is it, are we just about a perpetual terminal membership drive? Or are we about something? When the church still keeps a pursuit of members, and I don't mean church members, but members of the faith, people engaging the faith, and meanwhile grows with roots and depth and strength and worship and wonder, then we're talking about a healthy people. That's our burden. Man, make us that people. And as we pray for churches in this community, that should be our prayer. Not in a haughty sense like we've arrived because we haven't either. But in a sense like, Lord, grow this people, this community of faith, these, these Christians in this community, grow us into a healthy people where we're salty and bright and aromatic and where adults beget babies.